This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Well, hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and with today's message, we have made it to the completion of the incredible book of Colossians. You know, we've covered so much throughout this short letter. I think we started, what, at the end of the summer, back in last uh, August, September, something like that, maybe earlier. In any case, we've covered a lot, including some of the most profound and I would say most controversial proclamations about the divinity, the supremacy, the mystery, and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. And now, as we conclude the letter, Paul is going to send greetings and a few specific messages to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ there in the community of faith in the first century city of Colossa. People I'm calling the unusual suspects to riff on the movie if you have a memory of that. <clears throat> but first, before we go there, today is actually, I'm recording this, Saturday morning, April the 29th. This is Pastor Ethan, and as always, thank you for joining with me. So, Let's start with reading the passage. We're in chapter 4 of Colossians, starting in verse 7 and going through the end of the chapter and through the end of the book. And friends, as I read this, what I want you to do is to listen for several important themes, right, concepts about how we relate to each other within the church, within the body of Christ, because these are concepts that are so relevant to us today. And this is how Paul begins this final section. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Now my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and, De and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at La Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus... See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Okay. <clears throat> this is just, you know, sometimes at the end of um, a letter like Colossians, there's a parallel passage at the end of the book of Romans. Um, these probably Colossians and Romans are the the, the two examples of how Paul ends the letter on a very, very personal note, right? recognizing and speaking and giving greetings to multiple people. As we go through this, the first big theme that we see right off the bat 
was the idea that as believers and part of the community of faith, that we are all in this together, right? He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. You can just hear and feel the intimacy here. Paul speaks of his friend as if Tychicus represents Paul's presence himself. He says that he's a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. You see, there is no social stratification here. And Paul says nothing here, nor really through the entire conclusion, about specific levels or offices or official church leadership. The emphasis is all about friendship brotherhood, sisterhood, and how they all together are equally servants of Christ. So what is the express purpose of Tychicus' trip, right? Other than delivering the letter, we're pretty sure that was the case. Well, Paul says, I'm sending him, he is coming to you, that you may know about our circumstances, know what's going on with us. And then in turn, we, we after some time, we'll be able to, to, to hear about your circumstances and know what is going on with you that your hearts may be encouraged by hearing our story. Right? Again, just the, the whole emphasis here, we are in this together. We share a common hope, at times a common struggle, and our stories are intertwined. You see, Paul is no distant theologian. He writes, he, he, he writes and sends this message as a close personal friend. And not only are we in this all together, he says, but we are all the same in Christ. Paul goes on and he says, Tychicus is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you everything that is happening here. Okay, well, who is Onesimus? Well, if you've read the very next book in the New Testament, the book of Philemon, you know the answer to that. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Again, he's a central character in the very, very short letter of Philemon. So this man, this slave, could have faced death for his crime of escaping. And Paul says, he's one of you. Again, the social divides of the surrounding culture within the community of faith are just irrelevant. They are one in Christ, and Onesimus is to be to them as a faithful and dear brother, even though in the broader culture he would have been a condemned man. I mean, minutes earlier in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul had said this, For here, within the body of Christ, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And just reflecting on this, how do we allow, within the church, how do we allow cultural divides and barriers to impact us? Does this still happen? Well, it's many places it still does. What can we learn here? Paul continues, because we are all one in Christ, this means that there is the hope always. It means many things, but as we see here in the text, this means that there is the hope of reconciliation with friends, reconciliation among friends. You know, friends, the same as now, within the church then, there were broken relationships. And one of the most famous parting of ways, right, shattered friendships involved Paul himself. If you remember back early into the book of Acts, after we know Paul, the beginning of his missionary journeys, there's this, this, the dynamic involving Paul and his friend and mentor, Barnabas, 
and a young man by the name of Mark. And basically, Mark came along. Mark was close to Barnabas, and Barnabas and Paul were, of course, very, very close. <clears throat> and after a period of time, Mark turned away and left. Um, he, he abandoned the quest, so to speak. Um, and this led to, ultimately, I won't tell the whole story, but led to a divide between Barnabas and Paul, of Barnabas taking Mark with him and Paul going on, and they split directions, right, through the ministry. Now, in verse 10 here, Paul then says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark. This is the same Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And then goes on to say, If Mark makes it to you, I've told you about him, and welcome him. Oh, my friends, this is just a powerful glimpse because the sense is that Mark is now with Paul, maybe in prison with him, but definitely serving alongside him in Ephesus. Mark has grown, Paul has softened, and that relationship has been restored. And Paul gently encourages the Colossians to gladly welcome this man that Paul himself, years before, had turned away. Ah, so much there. But going on, not only do we see the reconciliation among friends, but the possibility of the miracle of reconciliation with our enemies. Verse 11, Paul writes, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. They are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. Excuse me. And they have proved a comfort to me. Okay, friends, my point here is subtle. And actually, I'm speculating just a bit. And to do even that, we have to go to a footnote in the text. So, Paul has just mentioned that Aristarchus, or he's just mentioned Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Just a little parenthesis there. It's possible that this man, Jesus, had changed his name to Justice out of respect, not wanting to share the name of the Lord, of Jesus. But then Paul says, at least in the NIV translation, these are all the these are the only Jews among my co-workers. Okay? We think, well, Paul is now working almost completely with Gentile believers, right? And this was and there was this small group of Jewish brothers with him. Makes sense. No big deal. Right, but if your text happens to have a footnote on the word Jews, if in fact you look at this in the NIV, you'll see that what the Greek text actually says is these are the only ones of the circumcision group. The NIV has shortened this to the word Jews, but it's very possible that Paul has a broader intent here. You see, a recurring dynamic in the churches that Paul planted was that there was a group of Jewish believers that sometimes we call the Judaizers. These were professing Christians, but they were saying that to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. And most importantly, you had to be circumcised, right? You had to take on the traditions of the elders and the Mosaic law. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Paul spoke out against this strongly, as he does multiple places throughout his letters. In fact, there is evidence that the Colossian heresy itself was rooted in this concept. But listen just to a couple of examples here. In Galatians 2, starting in verse 11, Paul says this, Now when Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Right? There's a whole backstory there. But before, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Okay, again, there's a very significant backstory there, but we see here Paul is remembering Peter, that even the great Peter, he fell into classism, right, um, and borderline racism because of the influence of these people who belong to the circumcision group. All right, in Titus, little letter of Titus, chapter 1, verse 10, we hear Paul say this, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. Guys, those are strong words especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, friends, if the interpretation that I'm suggesting here of our text in Colossians 4 is correct, the circumcision group that Paul refers to here in his final greetings isn't just a dramatic way to say, my fellow Jews. Right? Paul refers to Jews, both believers and unbelievers, all the time. And he does so just saying Jews. But only a few times does he refer to them as the circumcision group or those of the circumcision Right? So thinking about, again, the picture is these people, the circumcision group, these were opponents of Paul. Right? <clears throat> they sought to shut him down, and he speaks strongly against them multiple places in his letters. And so it's possible that what Paul is saying here now is um, he, he may be specifically, if, if not a bit cryptically, saying, you remember those Jews who opposed me at every turn? and who I regularly condemned as false and dangerous teachers, right? These people who were my theological enemies? Well, even some of these are now our co-workers in God's kingdom. And not only that, they are close friends, and they are a comfort to me. Again, my friends, we need to be careful not to read too much into the text. Paul may have just meant these guys are the only Jews in my group. But there is a hint here, one backed up by the larger message of the New Testament, that in Christ, even those who were our former opponents, even our enemies, can be restored to a place of friendship and brotherhood. For in Christ, there are no divisions. From here, Paul turns to another friend, the recurring character, Epaphras. <clears throat> Verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. All right, stand firm. Okay, again, we hear the theme of how all the believers share a common identity through their faith in Christ. In Philemon... Paul mentions Epaphras as well, calling him a fellow prisoner. You know, Epaphras was likely a leader in the church in Ephesus. Well, good grief. Epaphras was likely a leader in the church in Ephesus. Say that 10 times real fast. And who is a close worker with Paul. And here Paul points out that Epaphras' prayer, that the Colossians would stand firm in all the will of God, 
mature and fully assured, right? Paul wants them to know that this is how Epaphus is praying for them. Now, I want to camp on this for just a second. Again, asking, how does this speak to us today? So the idea here of the will of God, this is the sense of God's overall redemptive work, right? This is what Paul described in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, when Paul said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through Christ to reconcile to himself, for God to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, when Paul here speaks of the will of God, He's not describing God's specific plans for us and the details of our circumstances, as is often the thought in Christian culture today, right? This isn't the idea of, is it God's will for me to buy this car, enter this relationship, attend church A or church B, or take this job? The larger concept of God's will and purpose can influence these decisions like that. But friends, here we see the idea of the great redemptive work of God's grace in our world the hope of the reconciliation of all things. And this is the perspective Epaphras is praying that the church would have, that we wouldn't be distracted by things that would cause us to lose sight of the identity and purpose that we have received as ambassadors of the goodness and grace and redemption of God. Also, when we hear the word stand firm in the will of God, It's tempting and easy to interpret this as meaning I must stand against the enemies of God, right? Those whose lives I think are opposed to the gospel or who live in such a way that we may think violates the nature and character of God. Now, growing up in the church, I would often um, hear the the call to take a stand for Christ. You know, this week in school, um, youth, Christian young people, take a stand for Christ. And what that almost, almost meant was taking a stand against the big bad world and all the sinners and their ways. You know, we may call to mind when we think of this, the, the text in Ephesians 6.11, right? The wonderful and famous text that says, put on the full armor of God. Take your stand against the devil and his schemes. And again, that is an important scripture worthy of great discussion. But friends, this is not what Paul is talking about here. Rather, when he says that Epaphras is praying that they would stand firm in the will of God, he's saying that we are called to stand firm in the hope, the message of forgiveness, restoration, and redemption, and reconciliation for those whose lives are broken and in need of the grace of God in Christ. Rather than standing against people, this is a call to engage people, to love people, to know people, to listen to people, to develop relationships with people so that through our lives and the message of hope that we bear, they too may see and have the opportunity to receive the grace and the the, the redemption and the goodness of God in their lives today. Now, there's so much we could talk about there, but I've got to move on. Because next we see just a glimpse of how the church, the community of faith in Christ, was already profoundly countercultural. Verses 14 and 15, Paul says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, they send greetings. And give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Okay, 
Again, this is subtle, it's simple, but so important. But this is where we know that Luke was a doctor. It's the only place mentioned in the New Testament. And as a doctor, a researcher, and we also know that Luke was a prolific author, Luke would have been highly educated, and this would have placed him in the upper levels of society. And yet here he is listed alongside the other believers with zero fanfare, other than that he is an equal participant in the community of faith and that he is a friend. You see, in the church there were no barriers and no social structures of superiority. This was in great contrast to the surrounding culture. It was countercultural. And it turns out this breaking down of social and cultural barriers within the church also extended to the importance and the equality of women. Okay, friends, I'm not going to just go off on this. Those of you who know me know that this is an important, um, an important issue to me. But Paul here sends greetings also to the church in Laodicea. It's a town not far from Colossa, and he specifically mentions a woman named Nympha, who at a minimum hosted a church gathering in her home. Now, this tells us two things. First, it's a glimpse of how the church met. There were no church buildings, no church budgets, nothing remotely resembling our concepts of church staff and professional clergy. Rather, the believers met principally in people's homes. And second, It seems from multiple mentions, actually not just here, but several mentions in the New Testament, that the host of the church and a homeowner was not uncommonly a woman. You know, Paul makes no mention here of a senior pastor, a teacher, or a person of authority in this small church, really, nor anywhere in Colossians for that matter. But he specifically sends greetings to Nympha and her house church. And I'll I'll say it one more time, this may seem subtle, But the significance of this greeting is of such weight that across the centuries, various people, various theologians or church leaders have tried to translate Nympha's name in such a way to make it Nymphus or masculine. Because surely a woman wouldn't have been recognized in such a leadership role by the Apostle Paul. And yet she was. And not only Nympha, as we look across several other places in Paul's writings. Now, Again, this is a huge point of discussion, especially within the conservative evangelical world, even to this day. But a key point is that Paul's recognition, elevation, and dependence upon female influence and leadership was in strong contrast to the overwhelmingly male-dominated culture of the first century Roman world. Likewise, to say, as many have and unfortunately still do, that Paul always and explicitly restricted church leadership to men, friends, that's simply not biblically accurate. But having stirred that pot, let's move on. Verse 16, Paul says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So guys, here we see a picture, again, just a glimpse, of emerging scripture and the centrality of the community of the church. You see, even though Paul could not personally go to Colossa and Laodicea, his letters carried the same force and authority as his presence. In other words, the church was beginning to look at Paul's letters, which had already begun to circulate as scripture, even while Paul was still alive. You know, there's a fascinating tidbit near the end of 2 Peter, 
Peter says this. This is 2 Peter 3, verses 15 through 17. He says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. By the way, just parenthetically, it's kind of encouraging to me that right there while Paul was still alive, people were already reading his letters and saying, what is he talking about? Right? This, this is deep. This is intense. Right? We, we've got to try to figure out what he means. Right? We still do that today. Anyway, Peter says, his letters can some things, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Right? Even Peter, who had himself once been in a place of conflict with Paul, is recognizing Paul's letters as scripture. The other thing that we see here, and virtually on every page of the New Testament, is the centrality and importance of the church as a community that did life together and learned together, that grew spiritually together. You know, no one had a personal copy of Paul's letters to go home and to ponder, right, to decide what the text meant to them. That was air quotes. Rather, the letter was read in the presence of the gathered believers. You know, guys, today, we have incredible resources, you know, of, of biblical, just the biblical text, but, you know, centuries of people who have written about Scripture, you know, considered Scripture, wrestled with Scripture, commentaries, all of these things. We have all of these resources at our fingertips, right, that we can access just by ourselves. And this actually, this is wonderful, but it also allows our sense of spiritual identity and maturity to become highly individualistic. And that is not the picture we see in the New Testament. The church heard the scripture, they discussed scripture, they wrestled with scripture and matured as disciples in the concept of being a community and family. They did it together, and this is something as we consider, you know, just, just how we go about, you know, our own learning and our own spiritual maturity. You know, are we doing this in the context of the gathered body of Christ, or have we lost that? And guys, that's more about, that's, that's about more than just listening to a sermon with a group of people on Sunday morning, although that is wonderful as well. All right, I could just go on and on about this, but I think you hear the big point that I'm making. Right? We need to remember how the church existed and how it learned and grew together and the essentialness and the centrality of being a family, right? doing life together, learning together. Okay, enough there. Um, two more quick thoughts as we wrap up the letter. Paul's last greeting is to a person named Archippus. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. I'm probably not, but it is a call to remain faithful. Verse 17, Paul says, So tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Now, we don't know the nature of Archippus's ministry, nor his relationship with Paul, other than that here we have <clears throat> this little-known man who would very likely would have had you know, his own life, family, career, work, whatever, and the Apostle Paul takes time to encourage him in his faithfulness to God. <clears throat> now, again, the picture here that we see is that in the church, in Christ, there were no rock stars. There were no celebrity pastors. There were no famous worship leaders. Now, you may say, well, Paul's a big exception to that. You had Paul and Peter, right? these, these big people. But Paul constantly lowered himself, right? I, I need to become less so that Christ may become more. 
right? Paul here is placing himself alongside this guy, Archippus, alongside the believers in the Colossian church. We are, we are together. We are equal, right? Paul's closing greeting paints a picture of multiple everyday people, right? These unusual suspects whose lives had been transformed by their faith in Christ and through whom God was working to bring transformation to their world. And so, having poured out his heart in this incredibly profound and profoundly intimate letter, Paul now signs off, right? In his own way, basically saying, sincerely, Paul. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, this wasn't an uncommon way to end a letter, right? Often a person, even if he was in jail, such as Paul, would have his letter dictated. There would have been a scribe there who was trained, right, to take these notes, writing down what Paul said. And at this point, Paul asked the scribe to hand the pen to him to sign his name in these final words. It's, a, it's a, this picture that even though the letter was dictated, it was very personal. And Paul says, remember my chains. And friends, for all the prayer and prayer requests that we see in Colossians, this is as close as Paul gets to asking the church to pray for his circumstantial needs. Right? It's humble and it shines a light on the emphasis of prayer, the kingdom and knowing Christ's emphasis of prayer that Paul wants them to, to hear and to receive. And then, giving the same greeting with which he began the letter, Paul sums up everything he has said with a simple blessing, grace to you. With everything said, with everything in life as it really is, may you know, believe, and experience the indwelling, life-giving, peace-bringing, freedom-yielding, mind-enriching, and soul-strengthening grace of God. And so, my friends, as we now conclude our journey through the book of Colossians, I have enjoyed this. Lots has changed in my life. I've major, those of you who know me, major career shift in my life as we have gone through Colossians. I now end this letter by saying as well, grace to you. Church, I love you. Um, I'm not exactly sure where we are going next. Got a lot of work to do this week, but I will be here. I will be back here next, next weekend, next Sunday, and I hope that you join with me. Have a wonderful week. Grace to you.